welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for Christmas 2017. Now Christmas or December is often a pretty quiet month in the intensive care literature so let's take the opportunity to look back over the year that was 2017 and look at the critical care academic highlights, at least my academic highlights. Now as usual in our specialty there have been a lot so What did I learn in 2017? So let's start with the TRICS investigators who, if you remember, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in about November. So we should all know the evidence around restrictive versus liberal red cell transfusion strategy and critical care. But the important unanswered question is, does this apply to cardiac surgery, who are a pretty high transfusion cohort? So this study, which was an international, open-label, randomized, controlled, non-inferiority trial, compared restrictive transfusion, which is HB less than 7.5 as the trigger, versus liberal, HB less than 9.5 as the trigger. Um, And this started from induction of anesthesia, and went to hospital discharge of 28 days. And in 5,243 adults undergoing cardiac surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass, moderate to high predicted risk of death on Euroscore with a group, um, the primary composite outcome was death from any cause, AMI, stroke or new onset renal failure with dialysis by discharge of day 28. Um, And the primary outcome occurred in 11.4% of patients in the restrictive group compared to 12.5% in the liberal group. That's an absolute risk difference of minus 1.1% with confidence intervals that cross zero uh, and a p-value of less than 0.001 for non-inferiority. Mortality was 3% in the restrictive group, 3.6% in the liberal group. Uh, that's not significant. And red cell transfusion occurred in 52% in the restrictive group compared to 73% in the liberal group. There was no significant between group differences with regard to the other secondary outcomes. Now, subgroup analyses did not show a significant interaction with treatment except with regard to age. Restrictive transfusion strategy was associated with a lower risk of the composite outcome than the liberal strategy among patients who are 75 years of age or older, um, but not among younger patients. This effect was consistent in analysis according to decades of age, or with age as a continuous variable with the use of restricted spline modelling. So in summary, in patients undergoing cardiac surgery who were at moderate to high risk for death, a restrictive red cell transfusion strategy was non-inferior to a liberal strategy with respect to the composite outcome of death from any cause, MI, stroke, or new onset renal failure with dialysis. And they had less blood transfused. So to me, that looks like a transfusion trigger of 75 or 7.5 is as good as a transfusion trigger of 95 or 9.5 for cardiac surgery. So that's my first lesson for the year. The second big blood study was Transfuse, which has only recently come out in the New England Journal from our beloved ANZIC's CTG 
The question we've been all waiting for, is fresh blood better than old blood for critically ill patients? Remember, in 2015, we had the recess trial, which reported no difference in MODs or other outcomes in cardiac surgery. The ABLE try, trial reported no difference in 90-day mortality or secondary outcomes in 2,500 critically ill patients who got 6 versus 22-day-old blood. We had a big systematic review, all these things. In 2016, we had the INFORM trial, which is large, pragmatic RCT conducted in six hospitals, randomised 20,800 hospital patients to short-duration blood versus old-duration blood and found no difference in hospital mortality. So now in 2017, we have transfuse. Over four years, 60 centres, five countries, 5,000 ICU patients who were anticipated to stay in ICU for more than 24 hours required at least one unit of red cells and had not been previously transfused, were given the freshest available compatible allergenic red cells compared to standard issue, which is the oldest available. And this is the front of the fridge versus back of the fridge approach. Now, it did achieve treatment separation. The mean storage duration was 12 days in the short-term group compared to 22 days in the long-term group. And at 90 days, there were t the death rate was 24.8% in short term, 24.1% in long term. That's not significant, obviously. At six months, uh, the absolute risk difference was 0.4%. There were no significant between-group differences in 28-day mortality, persistent organ dysfunction, new bloodstream infections, mechanical ventilation, renal replacement therapy, ICU length of stay... There were more febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reactions in the short-term group than the long-term group. So that was interesting. Um, and the effect of red cell storage duration on 90-day mortality differed significantly according to Apache 3 risk of death. So patients who received the freshest red cells had higher 90-day mortality in the subgroup with Apache 3 predicted risk of death equal to above the median of 21.5% and lower mortality in the subgroup with a risk of death below the median. So overall that's all really interesting but this study supports the current international usual practice of transfusing patients with the oldest red cells available. Go figure. So what did I learn about ventilation this year? Well, the big news was the uh, ART investigators trial published in JAMA online in September. This prospective RCT compared lung recruitment maneuvers associated with PEEP titration according to the best respiratory system compliance versus conventional low PEEP strategies on 28-day mortality in patients with less than 72 hours of moderate to severe ARDS. So 120 ICUs from nine countries enrolled 1,010 patients over five and a half years. The two ventilation strategies were the intervention, uh, which was an experimental strategy with a lung recruitment maneuver and PEEP titration according to the best respiratory system compliance, and the control strategy, which was low PEEP. And all 
patients received volume assist control mode until weaning. This was an event-driven study designed to continue until 520 events, which is 28-day deaths, had accrued. This number of events was estimated to provide 90% power and assumed a hazard ratio of 0.75. What did they find? Well, at baseline, two days since ventilation was initiated was when patients were enrolled, 15 hours since ARDS onset, and only 10% were prone, which is kind of an interesting separate statistic. PF was 120, tidal volumes 5.8 mils per kilo, plateau 25 centimetres, driving pressure 13.5, peep of 12. Pretty standard, moderate to severe ARDS stuff, I would have thought. Treatment. Um, 96% of the experimental group received a lung recruitment manoeuvre after randomization, and in 16% of cases the manoeuvre was interrupted most often due to hypotension or a decrease in SATs. The mean titrated PEEP was 17. Lung recruitment was repeated after PEEP titration in 400 or 78% of the patients, and after the initial recruitment and PEEP titration, Alveolar recruitment was not repeated from day 1 to 7 in most patients, 63%. Mean peak values were higher in the experimental group than in the control group. Mean plateau pressures were higher in the experimental group, although they were always below 30 in both groups. Tidal volumes were below 6 mils per kilo in both groups from the first hour to day 3. Um, mean PF ratios were higher in the experimental group. Use of neuromuscular blockers was higher in the experimental group, 97 versus 73%, um, and that reflects the protocol requirement for their use before the manoeuvre. There are no differences among groups and other co-interventions or the need for rescue therapies. The primary outcome, 28-day all-cause mortality, was significantly higher in the intervention group, 55% each, versus 49% in conventional, p-value 0.04. Six-month all-cause mortality, higher in the experimental group, 65%, as compared to 60%. Um, and there was a slight increase in pneumothorax and barotrauma in the experimental group. So, a strategy using a lung recruitment manoeuvre and titrated PEEP in association with volume-assist control ventilation increased mortality of patients with moderate to severe ARDS. Now, that's really unexpected. So that led to a cessation of the Australian-New Zealand FARLAP study and in my mind uh, put the brakes on doing recruitment manoeuvres. Um, the next thing I learned about ventilation was the ghosts of Christmas pass, I guess, severity of hypoxia or hypoxemia and effect of high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in ARDS. This is published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. So, is HFOV worth another look? It is biologically plausible. You know, if protective ventilation is good, ultra-protective ventilation could be better. Oscillation delivers 1 to 3 mils per kilo at high rates, so it may offer benefit. However, four early trials of HFOV versus conventional ventilation and ARDS did report benefit, but two larger trials found no benefit and most concerningly, an increase in mortality. So remember, we had the oscillate trial that was stopped at 550 patients uh, who, had, who oscillated for three days um, and mortality of 47%, while conventional ventilation was 35%. 
And then we had the OSCAR trial in the UK of about 800 patients, and that reported no difference in the primary outcome of all-cause 30-day mortality. The subsequent combined meta-analysis reported no significant effect on mortality, but they did differ in design. So, would an individual patient data analysis of HFOV trials elucidate the relationship between oscillation and mortality in ARDS? So, the authors ended up with four multicenter trials. The US one, which was MOAT, 148 patients. The Netherlands, EMOAT, 61 patients. Uh, UK, OSCA, 800. Canada, Oscillate, 550. And an analysis of the data from the combined 1,500 patients was produced, and the primary outcome was 30-day mortality, which was the longest common follow-up to all those trials. They used mixed effects, logistic regression, multi-level modelling to account for clustering of individual outcomes within the treatment centres and within studies, and they adjusted for three prognostic variables, age, Apache 2 score, and baseline duration of ventilation using fixed effects. The hypothesis explored was that oscillation may be superior to traditional high tidal volume ventilation strategies, but inferior to low tidal volume ventilation. So, what did they report? Well, baseline lung injury was severe, PF 115, PF12. Proning was rare, except for OSCAR, 10 to 20%. 6% received nitric. 30-day mortality was... 41% in the oscillation group compared to 38% controls, adjusted odds ratio 0.94 to uh, 1.17, confidence intervals of 0.94 to 1.46, not significant. A statistically significant interaction was observed between baseline PF and the effect of oscillation, with increasing harm at higher values of PF ratio. The exact threshold where oscillation moves from benefit to harm is less certain, with a line of best fit crossing odds ratio of 1 at a PF of 100. So when tested in post hoc analyses, the odds ratio for mortality with oscillation when the PF was less than 100 was 0.83. Adjusted for trial, age, Apache 2 score, and duration of mechanical ventilation prior to enrolment, in patients with a PF of 64 or less, the adjusted Rate odds ratio was 0.68. Contrary to expectations, survival was better among the earlier quartiles of oscillation patients in each hospital compared to later patients, that is, when they were enrolled, with a clear dose-response relationship, and that was consistent in the last, in the three largest trials. The overall risk and odds of barotrauma were highest with oscillation, and neither respiratory system compliance or BMI modified the effect of oscillation on mortality. That's all a bit confusing. What does it tell us? Well, oscillations seemed harmful in most patients with ARDS, with a possible benefit in those with severe alterations in gas exchange. However, this group that might benefit is very difficult to identify. That is, a PF as low as less than 64 may be needed to exclude harm. Now, why was there increasing harm with oscillation as more patients were enrolled in any given hospital? It could be that low rates of oscillation accrual result in loss of those sort of startup skills over time or a change in practice. Either way, if you are looking for something to convince you that oscillation is the way forward, it's pretty hard to see it from this article. 
Okay, well, what did I learn about inotropes this year? Well, I learned a little bit about levosimendin because there were three trials reporting on it. So, first in JAMA, we had Lycorn. Does prophylactic levosimendin reduce the incidence of post-op low cardiac output syndrome in patients with impaired left ventricular function undergoing CAGs with cardiopulmonary bypass? So this RCT involving 335 patients compared a 24-hour levosimendin infusion commenced at anaesthetic induction with placebo in patients with EF less than 40% undergoing CAGs with bypass, and they found no significant difference in the composite endpoint of prolonged catecholamine infusion, uh, use of LV mechanical assist device or renal replacement therapy. That was 52 versus 61%. No difference in secondary endpoints, in hospital, 28-day, 180-day mortality, each component of the primary endpoint, number of days with circulatory mechanical assist device, yada yada, nothing. No difference in predefined subgroup of EF less than 30%, pre-op beta blockers, surgery type, pre-op balloon pump or catecholamine infusions, no difference in safety outcomes. So levosimendin was not effective in reducing the incidence of post-operative low cardiac output syndromes in patients undergoing coronary artery bypass surgery. Maybe the dose was too small, perhaps it could have been started a day earlier, perhaps it fills a role somewhere else, but it didn't work there. The second was Cheetah in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this was, again, levosimendin and cardiac surgery. So in this study, they compared levosimendin in addition to standard inotropic treatment versus standard treatment alone among patients with perioperative cardiovascular dysfunction after cardiac surgery. So they were included if they had um, perioperative cardiovascular dysfunction, which was defined at least one of the following criteria. A pre-op EF less than 25%, pre-op support with a balloon pump, need for a balloon pump or high-dose inotrope support in order to be weaned from cardiopulmonary bypass or at any time within the first 24 hours after surgery. Cool. So patients got either levosimendin as a continuous infusion, increased or decreased at the discretion of the attending physician um, for up to 48 hours or until ICU discharge versus placebo. What did they find? Well, it was stopped for futility after 500 patients. That's not a good sign. At baseline, most patients were randomised because of an inotrope requirement in theatre or ICU. That's like 75% of them. Um, and the other, there were 20% due to balloon pump and 4% due to low EF pre-op. The groups were met well matched at baseline. The levosimendin group got the drug. The primary outcome was 30-day mortality. It was 13% in levo, 13% in placebo. There was no difference in anything, any secondary outcomes, exploratory outcomes, etc. So in conclusion, this study reported no difference in 30-day mortality in patients requiring hemodynamic support after cardiac surgery who received levosimendin compared to placebo. There was also no other benefits or harm. So finally, we have levocts in the New England Journal of Medicine, study number three. This multi-center RCT investigated the effect of prophylactic levosimendin in 882 patients with left ventricular dysfunction undergoing cardiac surgery 
uh, CAGs and or aortic or mitral valve. Following induction of anesthesia, participants were given either levo or placebo and they were given other vasopressors or inotropes at the discretion of the treating clinician. At baseline, they were well matched. They got the drug and there were two primary outcomes. There was a four-component composite of death through to day 30 renal replacement therapy, through to day 30 perioperative AMRI, through to day 5, or use of a mechanical cardiac assist device through to day 5. And it was 24.5% for levo, 24.5% for placebo. It didn't do anything. A two-component composite was the second primary outcome, and that was death at day 30 or mechanical cardiac assist device, Levo was 13.1%, placebo 11.4%, not any different. Uh, they did analysis of interaction, um, no, there wasn't really any difference. Secondary outcomes, there was no difference in ICU length of stay, there was a lower use of secondary inotropes in the Levo cemented group, um, and there were no difference in safety endpoints. So overall, this study shows no benefit when levosimendin is used prophylactic in patients with low EF having cardiac surgery. So that's three RCTs of levosimendin in cardiac surgery this year, and all of them show no benefit, no harm, either as a prophylactic pre-op for patients at high risk or as a salvage post-op. So it's pretty hard to justify its use in those settings given how expensive it is. All right, what did I learn about kids this year? Well, in the New England Journal of Medicine, we had the Polisi Network uh, publish on tight glycemic control in critically ill children. So in 2014, the CHIP investigators randomised 1,400 critically ill kids to tight glycemic control, 4 to 7, or conventional, less than 12, and reported that it didn't improve survival but was associated with increased hypoglycemia, um, reduced renal replacement therapy, and reduced hospital length of stay and costs in non-cardiac surgical kids. However, a survey of Pediatric intensivists identified wide practice variation, and that sort of supports the need for further evidence. So this 35-centre RCT set out to randomise 1,880 critically ill children who are aged from 2 weeks to 17 years receiving vasoactive support for hypotension or invasive ventilation with confirmed hypoglycemia, excluding patients who had undergone cardiac surgery or had known diabetes. And they were got either low target, which is 4.4 to 6.1, or higher target, which is 8.3 to 10. Clinicians were guided by continuous glucose monitoring and explicit methods for insulin adjustment. And the results? The study was stopped on recommendation of the DSM at 700 patients due to likelihood, low likelihood of benefit and the possibility of harm. The primary outcome was ICU free days to day 28, and, that was, and the lower group, lower target group, that was 19 days versus the higher target group, 19 days, so no difference. In per protocol analysis, the median time-weighted average glucose levels were significantly lower in the low target group versus the high target group, and the insulin dose was significantly different, 0.74 versus 0.01 units per kilo per day. 
patients in the low target group had higher rates of healthcare associated infections than the high target group, 3.4 versus 1.1%, p-value 0.04, as well as higher rates of severe hypoglycemia, 5.2 versus 2%, p-value 0.03. There was no difference in mortality, organ dysfunction, or the number of VFDs. So, overall, critically ill children with hypoglycemia did not benefit from a lower glycemic target range as compared to a higher range, and there's a suggestion of harm. The next thing I learned about kids also in the New England Journal of Medicine was the THAPCA trial investigators' therapeutic hypothermia after in-hospital cardiac arrest in children. Current guidelines recommend either hypothermia or normothermia for temperature management after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in adults and children. To date, RCTs of therapeutic hypothermia versus therapeutic normothermia for in-hospital cardiac arrest haven't been described in adults or children. The characteristics of in-hospital cardiac arrest in children are different in terms of etiology, rhythm, response time, resuscitation skills of responders, and cause of death. This study, the THAPCA trial, randomized 329 children who are aged 48 hours to 18 years of age from 37 hospitals within hospital cardiac arrest greater than two minutes of chest compressions who had ROSC and remained dependent on mechanical ventilation to either 33 degrees C or 36.8 degrees C for 120 hours. After this, patients were rewarmed over 60, 16 hours sorry, to 36.8 degrees. They found the primary outcome, survival with a favourable neurobehavioural outcome at 12 months of follow-up, was, and that's defined as an age-corrected standard score of 70 or higher on the Vineland Adaptive Behaviour Scales. Now, before I tell you what the result was, the trial was terminated because of futility after 329 patients had undergone randomization. That might be a giveaway to the result, of course. Among the 257 patients who had a VABS 2 score of at least 70 before cardiac arrest and who could be evaluated, the rate of the primary efficacy outcome did not differ significantly between the hypothermia group and the normothermia group, 36 versus 39%. Among the 317 patients who could be evaluated for change in neurobehavioural function, the change in VABS score from baseline to 12 months did not differ significantly. Among the 327 patients who could be evaluated for one-year survival, the rate of one-year survival did not differ significantly, 49 versus 46%, and the incidences of blood product use, infection and serious adverse events, as well as 28-day mortality, did not differ significantly between groups. So, doesn't look like cooling helps in children. Okay, stick with me. What did I learn about cardiac arrest this year? In adults, that is. Um, so in JAMA, we had targeted temperature manager for management for 48 versus 24 hours and neurological outcomes after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, a randomized clinical trial. So this 
defining the role of TTM in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest continues to evolve. To recap, in 2002, we had Bernard in the New England Journal, 72 patients, 33 degrees Celsius versus normothermia for 12 hours, 180-day favorable neurological outcomes, 49% versus 26% in favor of cooling. Also in 2002, we have the Hackers trial, 272 patients, 32 to 34, versus normothermia for 24 hours. Six-month mortality, 41% versus 55%, favors neurological, favorable neurological outcome, 55% versus 39%, favors cooling. 2013, New England Journal, Nielsen and colleagues, 950 patients were getting bigger, 33 versus 36 for 28 hours, an increase by half a degree an hour to 37 degrees Celsius by 36 hours. No difference in six-month mortality or favorable neurological outcome. Uh-oh. So what does this paper, the Time Differentiation Differentiated Therapeutic Hypothermia Trial, add? Okay, well, in this RCT of TTM, they compare 33 degrees for different durations, 24 hours or 48 hours, followed by rewarming by half a degree per hour to 37 degrees Celsius in 355 adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and they excluded a systole and unwitnessed. It was 10 ICUs in 10 European hospitals. And they found that only 355 of 970 out of, 907, so about a third of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests were eligible. Then the groups were similar at baseline. The intervention worked. The temperature profiles differed over 48 hours. There was no significant difference in favorable neurological outcomes at six months. Mortality at six months was the same. And there was no difference in any other pre-specified outcomes. More adverse events occurred in the 48-hour group, uh, 97% versus 91%. And ICU length of stay was longer in the 48 hours hour group 251 versus 117 hours so prolonged targeted temperature management at 33 degrees celsius did not result in better neurological outcome however the study was powered to detect a difference of 15 degree of 15 percent in the primary outcome of favorable neurological outcome at six months and the observed difference is 5%. Now, is that important to us? It might be important to our patients. It just wasn't statistically significant. Is the 7% decrease in six-month mortality important? Do these non-significant results warrant the extra mechanical ventilation and length of stay associated with longer cooling? The editorial summed up the evidence really nicely. Together with other trials, the available data suggests that the benefit from a package of care including TTM is resilient to implementation with a range of target temperatures, 32 to 36, a range of onsets, 0 to 6 hours, and durations, 12 to 48 hours. Perhaps the dose-effect relationship is flat across a wide range of these doses, or perhaps trials are biased to not detect individual differences. Teasing out the individual variation and responses is going to be tricky and may need targets to monitor and different trial designs. So that was a really interesting study and editorial. The second thing I learnt about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in adults, again in the New England Journal of Medicine, was about bystander CPR. 
So does bystander CPR affect long-term neurological recovery? This analysis of the Denmark nationwide out-of-hospital cardiac arrest database sets out to answer this by examining the association between bystander CPR and anoxic brain damage from ICD coding or nursing home admission and of death from any cause among patients who survived day 30. I won't go through it all, but overall, this comprehensive observational national registry study of the association between bystander CPR or defibrillation and long-term neurological outcomes after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest tells us that outcomes have improved over time but remain sobering. A rough calculation suggests about 7 to 8% of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients are alive and don't have anoxic brain injury at one year. Early resuscitative efforts by bystanders are associated with a lower one-year risk of anoxic brain damage or nursing home admission, supporting the view that bystander interventions can improve functional outcomes and strategies that help bystanders initiate CPR and facilitate public access to automated external defibrillators may be of benefit. What did I learn about sepsis? Well, we had the new surviving sepsis guidelines, and that's got to be the biggest news of the year. Um, I'm not going to go through them again, other than to say I think the mandatory reading, at least the recommendations are, and they do provide a great debate point at a unit level. If you go through those recommendations and work out what you do and don't do and talk about that as a unit, it's a great process. We also had the uh, PRISM investigators in the New England Journal of Medicine, the patient-level meta-analysis of process, arise, and promise. Now remember, this is a journey that has gone from a single-center early goal-directed therapy study in 2001 that reported mortality benefit to the three national multi-center studies, process, arise, and promise, that failed to show the same effect. And we've all been waiting for this harmonised patient-level meta-analysis. The results um, were, in summary, overall, the, these three studies showed no benefit with early goal-directed therapy. In addition, there was no benefit in sicker patients or an effect that depended on the resuscitation practices of the emergency department. Finally, this study doesn't tell us the best way to resuscitate patients with severe sepsis in the ED with regards to fluid, vasopressors, targets, etc. It does describe very clearly what usual care looks like in these three countries. And finally about sepsis, uh, in the New England Journal we had the WHO resolution recognising sepsis as a global health priority. And this was a perspective which starts with a quote, some very important clinical issues, some of them affecting life and death, stay largely in a backwater which is inhabited by academics and professionals and enthusiasts, dealt with very well at the clinical and scientific level, but not visible to the public, political leaders, leaders of healthcare systems. The public and political space is the space in which sepsis needs to be in order for things to change. 
And that was Sir Liam Donaldson, former Chief Medical Officer, the current WHO Envoy for Patient Safety. We are told that a conservative underestimate puts the burden of sepsis at 30 million episodes and 6 million deaths per year. There is no data from low and middle income countries where 87% of the world population lives. 70% of world sepsis is community acquired. Most people don't know what it is and we are encouraged to educate the community. We need prevention, early recognition, rapid treatment strategies and for low to middle income company, countries and high income countries. The World Health Assembly, the WHO's decision-making body, went on to adopt a resolution on improving the prevention, diagnosis and management of sepsis and this include specific actions. There is a lot to do and potentially millions of lives to say it's a call to arms. So let's finish the Christmas review of the literature with two tilt of the hat to Christmas future. The first was the core outcome measures for clinical research in acute respiratory failure survivors, an international modified Delphi consensus study published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. I include this because this is recognition that our future lies in understanding and improving long-term outcomes and ICU survivorship. A core outcome set is a minimum collection of outcome measures reported in all studies within a specific field. Uh, and it, The idea is that it ensures the most basic and crucial outcomes are consistently assessed in the same way to facilitate comparisons, meta-analyses and prevent bias from selective outcome reporting. Um, it doesn't stop uh, investigators adding additional data um, and this group have uh, first established consensus on core domains um, and they had a Delphi process um, uh, and got everyone together and tried to come up with the type of outcomes that matter uh, and they published previously what that consensus development process to identify core domains came up with and these were survival, physical function, mental health, pulmonary function, pain, muscle and or nerve function, cognition and satisfaction with life or personal enjoyment and that was added after the last round. They then went on um, having de developed the domains by consensus to develop a core outcome measurement set and these are instruments that would be used in clinical research for evaluating patient outcomes after hospital discharge so again they got like a 77 person panel of researchers patients caregivers clinicians funders etc reviewed standardized information went through a three-round Delphi process over six months um, and got a response rate of over 90 percent for all three rounds the results um, survival they need to develop standards for the date and location, physical function and symptoms. We need to eva evaluate um, patient-reported outcome measures, recognising that these may not correlate with performance-based measures. Uh, and we need to also continue to evaluate those performance-based measures, but we need to hear more from our patients. 
mental health, HADS, impact of event scales, PTSD, pulmonary function, we need to evaluate and develop PROMS for pulmonary function, pain, we should use a single pain question in EQ5D, 5L, although further evaluation by an expert panel recommended as, uh, as a future research agenda, muscle and or nerve function, we need to further evaluate this, um, cognition, the mocha blind, and satisfaction with life or personal enjoyment. Uh, they recommend the EQ5D5L followed by the SF36 version 2. So that might sound a little dry, but I think it's really important because we are increasingly trying to standardize, improve, and make part of our everyday practice and trial design better understanding patient re reported outcome measurements for long-term survival after ICU. And finally, for 2017, we have uh, an article again published in American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, Gender Parity in Critical Care Medicine. So it starts off with a quote, our critical care community is interdisciplinary, interprofessional and international. It includes women and men of various races, ethnicities, cultures and belief systems. Our work environments are also diverse, spanning the spectrum of healthcare systems from urban to rural settings and from centres with an abundance of resources to resource poor centres in economically challenged regions. Our diverse backgrounds and experiences shape and enrich our field, generating a collective wisdom that is greater than the sum of its parts. Notwithstanding this diversity, we share a common goal of providing optimal care for critically ill patients and their families. This perspective, developed by an international panel, proposes five strategies to ensure gender parity in critical care medicine. One, we propose that critical care societies establish diversity policies for populating the panels they commission, sharing this responsibility with panel chairs and members Merit-based representation should reflect sex, gender, geography, ethnicity, economy and discipline. We propose that authors document, journals report, the principles and methods of panel composition for professional document development. We propose publicly available metrics of women's representation on panels for definition documents, consensus statements and practice guidelines. We propose that gender parity policies be incorporated into relevant bylaws within all areas of academic critical care, containing explicit targets which reflect, at a minimum, the proportion of women in the specialty. We propose training on diversity and unconscious bias for all critical care academics, particularly for those in leadership positions. So that's a great note to end 2017. I wish you all the best for the festive season and look forward to talking to you again in 2018. Thank you for your support of Critique. Have a great Christmas.